Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 52 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a glorious heat wave of a show lined up for you today. I say that because once again, we have a mini heat wave here in the UK and I'm recording the show in vest, shorts and flip flops, punctuating the recording with a series of mini rain dances outside. What are you talking about, Adam? We need to make the most of the rare, lovely weather. You blaspheme with your anti-ultra-hotness attitude. Hey, chill out. Literally, chill out. Have you seen my colouring? I go all lobster in the forehead when I sit out for five minutes in it uh, without applying a thick layer of nuclear fallout cream, at least. In fact... You know what? I recall my own first hypnotherapist asking me to imagine sitting on a beach with the sun shining on me and relaxing and so on. And I recall thinking, you evil, sadistic hypnotherapist, you are trying to torture me into getting better. This is imaginary burn therapy. Okay, I digressed somewhat there. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with my guest, Melissa Tears. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media and comment on some of those stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest, Melissa Tears. We'll be talking about neuroplasticity and how it's relevant and practically applied to hypnotherapy. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. Um, as I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis, and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences and approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with the related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the Hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do go give us a favourable rating and even a review at iTunes. I'll be your BFF if you do. So, first of all, today, this week's interview, it is with great pleasure that I welcome Melissa Tears, heralding from New York City in the US. Uh, Melissa first came onto my radar way back when this podcast was in its embryonic phases, as former guest of the show, Sean Michael Andrews, recommended that I track her down and invite her onto the show, spoke very highly of her. Melissa and I exchanged some emails, but our schedules were crazy and we did not quite make it happen back then. I then spotted that 
she was speaking at the UK Hypnosis Convention, where I'll be the keynote speaker, uh, in, just in case I hadn't mentioned that, later this October. And uh, organiser Nick Ebden also spoke very highly of her. We ended up touching base again and making it happen this time around. We spoke for plenty of time off air and uh, had a good laugh together, I must say. I even demonstrated to her the sound that my Doctor Who TARDIS waste paper bin makes when it's opened. And as you'd expect, she was well impressed with that. Ah yes, I know how to turn it on when I need to. Melissa is definitely one of the livelier guests that I've had on the show, and for me, her anarchic tendencies demonstrate her passion for this field, which is very contagious, and I think you'll discover for yourself that very thing. For now, get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea, enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to be joined on Hypnosis Weekly this time out by the one and only Melissa Tears. Melissa, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Thank you, Adam. Happy to be here. So, let's learn a little bit about you, Melissa. Um, Tell me, how did you get into this field? Tell us a little bit about your background and how you arrived at where you are now. Hmm. Um, You know, it's funny. in in all the interviews, people kind of ask the, the 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 origin story, and when I get asked that question, I I have you know three different images in my mind yeah. that kind of flow together, right? So I could tell the story as you know I was always um, fascinated by consciousness and altered states of consciousness and I can you know say from age four of constantly spinning and then doing this hyper you know hyperventilating trick when I was a child just to get dizzy and you know and and stare (laughs) at the sky um, to you know massive uses of hallucinogenics in my teens Um, and I can talk about just you know this this experience I had once uh, in Central Park when I was you know, hallucinating. And for just one fleeting moment, I understood something. And mm. I, it was it was this powerful um, experience of, you know, interconnection, and it made sense to me. And then it was gone. Now, I come from um, a very liberal family, we were not raised in any type of religion. Um, so another part of the origin story is my search for answers, right? So the joke in my family is I tried every single religion until I was, you know, 12 and, and declared uh, myself a staunch atheist. Mm. But I was a Catholic. I was a Protestant. I was a Methodist. My mother uh, was Jewish. My father was Catholic. And by the time they had five kids, you know, they were they were atheists. So <laughs> this this constant search for someone show me some proof and coupled with my fear of death that seemed to be present since I was three and would not stop talking about death um, really sent me on this journey right so from there kind of going to look for how can I achieve if the mind is so malleable that I can take a drug that can shift 
the world in such a drastic way, at least perceptually, then we've got to have the receptors, you know, within in order to make that happen, which means we probably can produce these types of experiences without drugs. So that was the next part of the journey Mm. was me searching for how to alter my state of consciousness without uh, the use of an external agent. So um, I was a, a rock and roll musician and I was just one of those people that had this constant, uh, you know, obsession and would go to the Monroe Institute and learn how to synchronize my brain and, you know, induce <laughs> alpha, theta, you know, brain waves at will, um, just looking for uh, answers. And I would go to the noetic conferences and, you know, have conversations with, you know, quantum physicists who were, you know, interested in the nature of consciousness. And I would immerse myself in these worlds and um, all while still being a, a, you know, a rock and roller. Um, And eventually that type of altering of consciousness brought me to, you know, my first hypnosis training. And it was really a three day course in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, the fir- very first day when I saw what was happening, I was hooked. So then I took another three-day training, then another three-day training. <laughs> then, <laughs> then I was just, you know, looking for more. And uh, they were doing this 10-day medical intensive. And I thought, well, that would be cool. You know, my mother has migraines. I have migraine headaches. Let me learn to do that. And in order to do that, I had to join this uh, DCH program. And so I just said, sure, why not? And um, did that for 10 days. And then they, you know, part of this program was uh, three day NLP and then another three day NLP. And that turned me on to that, that side of the camp where I then dove deep and, you know, went to different workshops with all different people. And, you know, that was, um, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years ago where I started going to the Monroe Institute and, you know, which is basically uh, learning self-hypnosis, you know, Um, I thought it was really to do with the binaural beats. And, you know, so in my trying to explain to myself the experiences and the feelings I was having while, you know, synchronizing my brain and being led through these guided, basically guided meditations. At that time, I didn't know hypnosis. So I thought it was, you know, something about the binaural beats, something about the brain. (laughs) And so I was studying what I could until I took a hypnosis training and thought, ah, it's basically hypnosis what they were doing, you know? Mm So I know that I've just gone in a circle here, uh, but it's, it's really hard to say what you know, it's not a linear uh, path, this path to where I am now. I mean, I can look and I can see so many things. You know, if it wasn't for my fear of death, I probably wouldn't have gone to the Monroe Institute, which purported to teach you how to synchronize your brain and possibly Mm. have your consciousness exist outside your body. See, for me at the time, you know, I thought, well, if I could really do that. If I could systematically, you know, be conscious of, you know, looking at my body from the ceiling, well, then that just expands my world 
Mm. You know, right? So remember, I was an atheist looking to not be an atheist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get and that. at this point, I can happily say I've moved into the realm of being an agnostic, which is I have no fucking idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm okay with that now. Yeah. It took me a long time. You know, I'm 49 uh, this year, and uh, I'll be 50 in April. And I'm like, finally, I can I can sit there and, and relax and not have this desperate need to absolutely know. I mean, yeah. sure, I go through patches. but So I would say that. And then at a certain point, um, hypnosis became more fascinating to me. Uh, then rock and roll. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then I kind of got pregnant and thought, okay, I have to figure something out. And so what started as a part-time, um, you know, gig fascination, hypnotizing people, you know, in the back of clubs, um, as well as just experimenting, um, became, oh, you know, I can, I can supplement my, my, my income this way and then eventually to uh, having an office and and doing it full time and, and you know that's that's yeah. kind of how I got here and you know the funny thing is I say what what brought me to this field is is curiosity yeah. uh, a burning curiosity and that is what keeps me in this field because I don't really know many um, fields where there's no cap there's no cap on knowledge. There's never a point, Adam, where I'm going to be able to say, I know everything there is to know about the mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I know everything there is to know about hypnosis, about consciousness, about the brain. You know, the more we find out, the more we realize we don't know anything, you yeah. know. And so, you know, um, you and I were talking a little bit b- before the recording uh, about, um, you know, tolerance and, and, and creating this this atmosphere where um, we can learn from people whose ideas are very different than ours. I just came back from a, a conference, and next week I go to HypnoThoughts Live, another conference, and then next month I'm, I'm to see you in, in London, and I'm excited because there's, there's a few people there I've never seen in action, so I'm excited about the UK conference and then Berlin. So I'm you know, I'm always kind of going to these things. It's it's my playground, and I'm surrounded by all sorts of people. You know, you and I were talking about sometimes the tribalism that, that goes on. Yeah. And one of the things that um, I was just having a conversation at the NGH conference, somebody brought up how um, I was able to kind of straddle certain camps because I'm looking for what's what's underneath right let can we trim some of the dogma can we can we get rid of you know the the obvious ritual and see what's going on um that's similar you yeah. know so when i teach a class on you know reconsolidation of memory and the most to me the most groundbreaking and and fascinating thing in the field is um the discovery that we can literally rewrite uh early implicit learning that, you know, these memories that play out uh, in everything we do, our beliefs, our values, our ideas about ourselves and the world, we can literally change those now and we can see that um, and how that kind of explains NLP processes of re-imprinting and, and anything that changes the affect of a memory. 
And then we, that also explains the regression to cause camp, right? Mm-hmm. Because we can track, you know, um, this, this, this meta pattern of change that, that I've been teaching, that I learned from my friend and favorite teacher, John Overdurf, who teaches the meta pattern of change, which is the four steps underneath almost every change process. And mm. so once you have this kind of consistent thing, then it doesn't matter how you dress it up. It doesn't matter what technique you use. Mm. Mm. And one, you know, so once I've gotten to this idea where I realize, you know, so much of it is window dressing and it's great for ritual because we need novelty, we need curiosity in order to spur on, you know, uh, dopamine and neuronal growth. And so it's okay, you know, it's okay to dress it up in things that are going to capture attention, lock in curiosity. Yeah. And so I'm all for it. It took me many years to get to the point where I wasn't looking at a certain idea and going, "Oh my god, that's crap. Why are you, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. not how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. You know what? You know what I was just thinking. I think that somewhere along the line you missed you missed a trick, Melissa, because um um, um you 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 spoke at the top end of 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 your reply there um that you spent a lot of time thinking about death and fearing death and with your rock and roll musician background, I think there was a niche as a goth hypnotist for you out there, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I really do. But I, I love your, I love your, can, I love your candor, and I love your openness about about your journey and and and, and about where where you're at with the moment at the moment. And um, I, I really want to, I really want to explore some of the stuff that you've been speaking about later on in our discussion. Amongst all of that, amongst all of that research that you've done, amongst all of your experience that you've had, where are you at as far as hypnosis is concerned? I mean. Ha- where are you at with regards to how do you explain it? I mean, if you explain it, do you explain it to your clients? Where are you at as far as any kind of either working model or definition of hypnosis is concerned as of today? Well, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And I, I change, obviously, I, I change how I describe it depending on who I'm working with. So at this point um, in my practice, I would say that about 90 to 95 almost percent of my client base comes by way of psychiatrists mm-hmm. and therapists. So um, actually, well, let me back that up. It's, it's more like 80% because the rest, uh, the, the rest of that 95 are psychiatrists and therapists and coaches that find themselves to me. So I'm either seeing a group that has been in therapy for a long time or the actual therapist. And how I explain hypnosis is very different. I also see a lot of kids and teens. My new book that just came out, like, um, three days ago is integrative hypnosis with kids and teens that I wrote Mm. with this amazing uh, woman, Kelly Woods. And so, you know, it really depends if it's a skeptical teen. I, you know, I, I explain it one way. If it's a child, it's, you know, no explanation necessary. Um, Usually I'm explaining to the parent. So I would say that at, at this point I used to um, use the typical, uh, Elman idea of it is, you know, a bypass of the critical faculty of the mind, right? Mm-hmm. It's a narrowing of, of focus with a bypass of that, you know, an in, in, in ability to, to alter subjective experience, mm. right? So um, 
But I'm also a, a huge, massive fan of Milton Erickson, who I, I feel has contributed more to my work than anyone else. Um, and, you know, his idea of uh, a focused awareness and, and hip, hypnosis being a, a, a certain type of communication that allows you to narrow your attention and, you know, and, and really uh, engage different areas of the mind. So what we're learning now, um, and there was a recent study that came out that literally pinpointed certain regions of the brain that seem to be getting either more action or less action. It, I go back to, you know, that, that both of these um, brilliant geniuses uh, were correct in that there are certain networks in the brain that, that get more action and less action. Mm. And the less action is that self-critical, the self-consciousness um, uh, the salient network, which, you know, uh, tells us what to pay attention to in what context. Yeah. Then there's the other, the, the other mode that says we can separate, um, just like Erickson's work did in almost every session, which is to kind of separate, uh, you know, emotion from cognition. Mm. That we can we can entertain an idea or even look at a memory without the same emotions. Uh, coming into play. So it really depends. I mean, to simplify it, and, and it's so funny because I'm, I'm a trainer. I'm a hypnosis trainer, and, you know, that I throw out a bunch of different definitions, and then I say, and, and it all depends on my mood. Well, you know? so, but, but, but also, also you, know, you know, good teaching isn't just about saying this is what the answer is, right? You know, um, Yeah, because we, we still don't know. It's, yeah, exactly. It's about saying, you know, here's what some guys think, here's what some other guys think, here's, here's what some research says, here's what other research says. You know, I, I see a lot of hypnotherapists sharing the recent Spiegel study that you mentioned there. Yeah. Yet, yet I also encounter a huge number of my favorite academics in this field, highly critical of, of, of it. Um, um, and and when, we, when you and I meet in October, I need to introduce you to my favorite gin. And we probably, w w w w <laughs> we, will, we will discuss that for ages and ages. Um, um, but I don't <laughs> want that to, 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 to dominate our interview today. Um, um, because you, you, know, you mentioned Ericsson, um, um, you mentioned John Overdurf, um, um, a, 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 a friend of mine, um, Igor, a previous guest on the show, cannot speak highly enough of John Overdurf. Um, um, who, Igor, uh, Igor and I were, were in uh, his, his master uh, practitioner class together once ah. uh, a, a while back. Um, John, who has become one of my dearest friends, um, you know, the, the man who texts me to make sure I'm okay when David Bowie died, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and does over text his opposite game so that I kind of, you know, I, I, I chuckle and break out of my, oh my God, I'm going back to bed forever because David Bowie is dead. Yeah. Um, you know, so John is a very good friend of mine, uh, but in, in, in my uh, opinion. I was going to say humble opinion, but that's bullshit. Um, in my opinion, he is right now the greatest mind out there. And mm. so for those listening, if you're not aware of his work, then you are in for such a treat. Yeah. I bring him to my center every single year, um, mainly because we love hanging out together, but also because I want my students to, to get a taste of it. You know, I, I've been teaching um, John's key points because it's heavily influenced my work. 
in more ways than I can, you know, it would take uh, hours and hours of this interview um, to, to share with you just how heavily influenced my work has become by John's. You know, I was doing this work for many years before discovering his work. And, you know, once he pointed out to me that what I was doing was X, Y, and Z, I was able to look at, at everything I did that worked in an entirely different uh, way. I was able to say, oh my God, you're right. This is the meta pattern. So is this, so is this, so is this technique, so is this technique, so is this technique. And it, it just deconstructed all of the, you know, uh, quote, techniques, unquote, um, and gave it this... Um, this room, this room to breathe and be creative. So when I'm doing work and, you know, people are asking me about it afterwards because I've been filming, I have these demo days and people really like to watch just people come up and I say, what do you want to change today? You know, and we just do whatever comes. You really do start to see that even though it seems very, um, I'm just flying by the seat of my pants, there is an underlying structure that is so unconscious to me that I'm always following it mm. Mm. and it just feels like a conversation but really you know the way that I would describe what I do these days it's 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 practical neuroscience it's literally saying we need to rewire this we need to decouple the stimulus from this response and we need to rewire and condition in right through through kind of heavy and law this neurons that fire together, wire together. But mm. so John Overdurf has been, I would say, the biggest influence. I mean, obviously, I can't talk about influence without talking about, you know, the work of Bandler um, and Grinder and um, all of that. I I love the curiosity that draw that well that used to drive NLP mm. um, in its in its in its beginning. And the modeling aspect of it, I feel like when I sit down with a client, um, you know, I'm modeling their internal strategy in order to find the quickest way out. You know, I work with a lot of OCD uh, at this point. And so for me, the easiest way to figure out how to put a wrench into that loop is to climb in. And I kind of wouldn't know how to do that if it wasn't for, you know, some certain NLP trainings and things like that. So yeah. I would I would say that influences me. And then um, the other things are aren't, they're not necessarily hypnotists, but they've influenced my work in a big way. Jeffrey Schwartz's work with OCD mm. um, and, and self-directed neuroplasticity, mm. um, you know, so. I mean, I, I'm, I'm all over the place. I, I always am either reading, listening, or watching something um, that, that adds to what I do. I'm, I'm currently um, listening to Bessel van der Kolk's book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. So, I'm, um, you know, I, I kind of skimmed through it when I first got it as a book and thought, oh, there's some good stuff here. Um, but now that I'm listening to it, and and the reason why I revisited it was I have practice supervision nights for all of my students. So every other Wednesday, I provide a kind of space for um, my students to to hone their skills, to grow. We we sit around because so many of them are therapists, and you know they want to say, okay, I have this client. What do you suggest? But really, it's it's also for me. You know, I don't charge extra for this because it's also my laboratory. 
And the unspoken rule is, you know, if I say close your eyes, everybody in the damn room better close their eyes <laughs> because I'm experimenting and I'm creating different ideas and I'm, I'm, I'm loving creating um, different uh, inductions that blur the line between trance and not trance. You know, um, I, I kind of have moved away from, you know, the press down on my hand, look at my eyes, sleep, <laughs> you know, yeah. because therapists don't use it. And I'm training therapists. So I need yeah. to figure out, you know, rapid inductions that don't require um, shock, that don't require touching, uh, because psychiatrists and therapists here in America are not allowed to touch their clients. So, in, in having these kind of parameters, it's made me very creative. Yeah. And I really like that blurring, you know, so that when, when people walk into my space, I've already done a considerable amount of priming the mm. unconscious mind mm. with the environment, with the smells, with, you know, every little thing. And I know we're, we'll, we'll get into that at the different uh, portion of this interview because I find that very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you plenty about that. Um, yeah. Um, so, so let's go back to your standard form. Did I yeah. answer that question? I don't even yeah, remember what it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. No, you, you did. You did. Don't don't worry. I I I, I will keep us on track. Okay. I, I, <laughs> good. I, I will keep us on track. You can you All can right. go be maverick as you like, and and, and I, I, I I will just keep very soberly bringing us back um, um, so those so those are my influences if, great, if that was the question great, okay great, great. That, that, that was the question you remember <laughs> so um, um what about what about you know throughout your experience then throughout your experience throughout the the people that you've worked with trained and so on what's been one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've that you've directly witnessed and been there involved in or seeing or so on now there's a question um well, I mean, hmm, let's see. I guess the, the one of the first um, things that really blew my mind um, was in experimenting with some of the uh, tapping uh, techniques that I was quite skeptical of. I'm a skeptic by nature. I like to know how things work. And none of this made sense to me. Right. Mm. So you're going to tap here, but you're saying it's not anchoring and you're saying it's not hypnosis. Right. To me, it's all hypnosis. It's about belief and suggestion. And we know the the placebo research indicates that we can do a lot with our belief and expectation. Mm. But I was I was uh, experimenting with it when I didn't have the belief and I didn't have the expectation. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. I was kind of doing it to debunk it a little bit because, you know, back then I was a bit of an asshole um, and was very, you know, judgmental about things that I thought were um, taking this this field, uh, you know, into into la la land and away from credibility, um, which, you know, is a joke in itself for me to <laughs> for me to think that um, anyway. And when I was trying to figure it out, I was just using it on anyone and everyone just as an experimental thing. Yeah. And I had this woman come to me. Um, she was uh, very pregnant and she was having excruciating pain in in her wrist. And her hand was so swollen. It was like 
I had never seen something like that, you know, uh, in pregnancy. Maybe it was retaining water. I, I don't remember. It was many years ago. And I remember saying, well, okay, you know, I can, uh, I can teach you some self-hypnosis for pain management and we can do all that. But let's just, I learned this weird thing and let's just see what happens. So I did this tapping with her and she said her pain went from a 12 to a zero. And I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it? And then she said, and it's too bad you can't do something about this swelling. And I thought, well, let's just see what happens. You know, I, when I'm in experimental mode, I am obnoxious. Uh, you know, my family, when I was tr trying to suss out what was going on with this tapping, um, you know, I would even hear my husband shake the, the Advil or aspirin bottle and I would come running. I'd be like, what? Don't take it. Let me try this thing. Let's see what we can do with this thing, you know. So I was really obnoxious. And so I thought, well, let's just try it. And obviously I had just taken her pain from a 12 to a 0. She was willing to try anything. Mm. We did this tapping. And right before our eyes, her, 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 the swelling started to diminish. And we both just stood there. It was like, I wish I had it on film. Because both of our, you know, jaws were basically on the floor, staring at her hand, and I don't even know how it's physiologically possible. Uh, of course, she did then run to the bathroom. So maybe there was something to that. But I don't understand how it worked. And I, I, I can just attempt to rationalize it. But all I can tell you is that we watched it go down. Mm. And I was like, okay, you know what? This little trick, whatever the hell it is, whatever the hell the mechanism is behind it, it goes into the kit. It's now a technique to be given to clients because, you know, if I wait for science to validate what the hell is happening, then I'm not helping people in the way that I can. And it took me, Adam, at least seven to eight months of ridiculous experimentation before I brought it into my office for my clients. Mm. And this was one of, you know, this was like the first month where I was bringing it in, even though the first experience with it took away my dental phobia. <laughs> <laughs> I still was not convinced I knew how it worked. And for some reason, I was still, you know, really um, latched on to this idea that I needed to know in order to deliver this, I needed to be able to explain the mechanism, which is a joke considering we still don't know how the hell hypnosis really works. And if well, it's I a state that. or a non-state, you know, like I, we I, don't. I, I love, I, I, I love the application. I love the, 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 the experience, by the way. But, but I, I, I also really love this idea of wanting to know, you know, the underpinning rationale, the mechanism underneath something in order for it to work. And I think that, that, that out there in the world and sometimes within the, the, the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy, uh, I, I, think, I think people could, would be justified in angling a criticism at people that just used something or, or, or almost wielded it with, with no soul, with, without understanding it and just treated it like a verbatim thing that they just do and regurgitate time after time and and i think you know one of the things that we spoke about off air was um, um you mentioned that you had a propensity for riffing from time to time that was that, that was um um and, and and going off in your own direction and i think if you don't understand something the underpinning rationale of the mechanism behind it it's very difficult to do things congruently in your own style, in your own way, and go off on tangents and, and layer your own language onto it and so on. If you don't understand how it works, you'll be confined to just, to, to just doing it and regurgitating it verbatim. Um, 
I'm, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, um, you know, I'm I'm with you there, and I really feel like this this desire to understand what's going on, um, you know, certainly drives me. I told you I'm I'm kind of fueled by this curiosity, mm. um, and it 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 really plays out in. In, in so many different ways in my life. Um, I would say that, you know, people that do, let's, I mean, let's just stick with even this tapping technique. They, it's not, in my experience, the people that do it without the, the massive need to know, they still have a way of understanding it in their minds. They, they believe that there's this energy system and, you know, there is a, a, a crimp in it, basically, um, a stuckness, a blockage, and that by tapping, you're releasing it. So even, even, you know, some of the people that I would feel are, you know, like floating in the clouds, you know, like in La La Land, still do have a basic understanding in their own mind, whether it's scientifically validated or not, um, that they that they do it. Now, that's what the tapping, in my experience, I, I, I actually teach a course um, at the uh, Tri-State College of Acupuncture here in New York City. Which is funny because, you know, I wasn't sure that there was any scientific validation for the Meridian system still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I, but I teach this, this course because they, they, they like my work and, and it's, you know, in my, in my opinion, whatever it is, you need to bring the mind on board. So, you know, whatever the mechanism behind acupuncture is, it's going to only be helped if you know how to engage the mind, if you understand the use of, you know, language to shift attention, if you understand temporal spatial language and, you know, how to have the mind play a bigger role in what the body is doing. And so, you know, I'm cool with that, but there's all different types of of explaining. I do understand what you mean about people that kind of just regurgitate what they've been taught and never look beyond it. In the same way that someone uh, fairly recently said, oh, well, I use the NLP allergy cure for, you know, t- you know, allergies. And I said, ah, yeah, you know, that that that's kind of the meta pattern, you know, and they just had no without the actual script, they didn't really know what they were doing. They were following this script, and as far as they knew, they followed the script, and the, and, and the allergies went away. Mm. And I'm like, don't you, well, so what if somebody tore away the script for you, and you hadn't memorized it yet? Wouldn't you want to know how to get this done without it? Wouldn't you want to know the basic mechanism underneath all of these, um, you know, techniques that involve certain things, associating in, dissociating, sending resources, associate, you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't, and so I do um, challenge uh, people that are, are not too curious or, or fascinating, you know, by the mechanisms underneath and whenever I feel that one of my students is just, uh, you know, parroting uh, something from an earlier trainer, that's when I hone in and dive a little deeper into what they understand that to mean. Mm. Because without thinking, um, then y- you are just repeating. And, you know, I went through a phase very early on where I started to challenge all of these things that were taught to me as gospel by, you know, a simple, how do you know? Where's the research on that? Really? The unconscious doesn't process negation? Well, then 
<laughs> and then I started just, you know, going off in real world examples where if that were true, why wouldn't we all be, you know, walking into the street when it says <laughs> don't walk? Why wouldn't we all be crashing when we see a billboard that says, you know, uh, don't drink and drive? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I understand it's a little more difficult to process negation because you have to go through an extra step in mind before you can get to there. But so I went through a phase where I challenged it all. Uh, I mean, don't get me started on this idea of somnambulism. <laughs> I was trained early on, you know, my very first training. It was very much an Elman kind of, you know, you need to do this induction because this induction um, gives you somnambulism. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. How do you know? Because... If I say to this person next to me, close your eyes and I want you to imagine, visualize the numbers fading, imagine them fading. And as I count, are they, you know, so they're, are they gone? And they nod. Yes, they're, they're visualizing these numbers fading. They're following my suggestions. Yeah. That doesn't indicate anything. And actually, if we look at the research, um, and, and yes, of course, we can poke holes in, in the way that these research studies are set up. But time and time again, there seems to be this idea that for true somnambulism, there's only a small percentage of the population that can access that, the deep trance subject. And so, you know, this idea that you must get somnambulism in order for X, Y, or Z to happen, and yet there's only 10% of the population that can achieve it, does that mean you're only helping 10% of the people that come to you? If all if, if your entire work is based on you must get somnambulism, then I want to know what the hell somnambulism is and how do you know you're actually getting it? Now, as a metaphor, as a, you know, as a model, then I can understand if you're teaching your students to do this, that they want to get certain things in place. I just don't find it useful, nor do I find any scientific research to back that up. Mm. Sorry, I even forget what started that. You know, I'm operating no, 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 on no, only no, no. No, that's one fun. cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, one of the things I should have I should have had a second espresso, and then maybe I would have been a bit more focused for you, Adam. But I think, no, no, you know, no. not asking these questions and regurgitating just what your teacher taught you is 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 probably what stunts people's growth. Yeah, but I do find that eventually they grow out of those limitations. As did I, you know, um, as soon as I find that I'm, you know, uh, speaking with total conviction uh, on, a, on a topic, well, that's when I need to check myself. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's when I need to really step back and say, all right, Melissa. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and examine our own bias and our own, uh, you know, I, I hear you on that. I also think that... Um, when people are invested in, in, in training that they've had, for example, and they are feeling safe, regurgitating things as they've been taught, very often it's the, their belief that's invested in the, 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 the therapy or the technique or the strategy that they're, in, that, that, that they're using, which is carrying the outcome that they're getting rather than actually yes. what they are doing. And, um, you know, you, you, you you made some. You, you made up so many points that I would love to discuss. Um, 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 but but if we could go back, if we could go back to when you started out as a hypnotherapist, then when you started out 
doing your training, yeah. you say, knowing what you know now, you know, after these 25 years, um, um, is there anything that you'd do differently at the beginning? And if so, Oh, what? hell and, yes. And, and, and what advice would the person that you are today give that younger you? And would you mind sharing that with, with our listeners? Sure. Um, so one of the things, you know, I must confess that when um, I first started, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like the internet was not up and running, but I will say that I was not really savvy in it. It, you know, had I had I been more comfortable using a computer, I might have searched for, you know, some different trainings. I might have traveled to uh, Pennsylvania to one of John and Julie's trainings at the time. I would have found Bandler earlier. You know, I would have, you know, found, I would have hunted down, um, you know, these, these amazing people and Stephen Heller, I would have gone to a training for. So mm. I first, I would have done more research. I was in New York and I took, you know, I saw an ad in a paper. <laughs> I mean, that's how <laughs> <laughs> I saw an ad in a paper and that was what I knew. So to, I kept learning um, from this group because they were here in New York. And, and had I the wherewithal, I would have done a lot more research. Um, I certainly wouldn't have signed on for their DCH program had I known that many years later that was going to cause a bit of uh, a problem in certain camps for me, you know. Um, I never thought anything of it because I was still a rock and roll musician. I was never going to use it, um, but it seems to, uh, in the past three or four years, you know, there's this, um, there's this website that's like debunking all, you know, fake doctors or whatever. And, you know, uh, so that, that, that's been something that when people Google me, they see it and, you know, it, 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 it causes a little bit of discomfort. Because so many of the people that send their clients to me are doctors. And I have to explain to them, look, it's a DCH. And, and I actually did spend quite, quite a lot of time getting it. But no, it wasn't Harvard. You know what I mean? Like, no, it wasn't a real, you know, uh, thing now that I know that. But at the time, I didn't care. And they said it was credited through the, you know, Delaware Association, whatever. But what did I care? So I definitely wouldn't have done that. And I would have sought out some of the amazing um, hypnotists and NLP trainers. I mean, eventually I, I learned how to do that and would travel to, you know, Bandler and things like that. But had I saved myself all that time, energy and money um, in the beginning I mean, who knows where I would be now? So what I would yeah. say is find the people that whose work you really admire yeah. and uh, seek them out. You know, yeah. go go learn from them. It, travel if you must. I love doing that. You know, I, I love immersing myself in it. And whether it's going to, uh, you know, Atlanta or Phoenix for John Overdurf or whether it was even Mexico, you know, for – so that that would be – uh, what I would say is um, question everything. Uh, yeah. You know, don't don't believe anything. Even when I'm teaching, I always say, "Look, the last thing I want is for you to believe me." Yeah. You know, but right. let me at least spark a little curiosity in you, so that you'll go and do the research and prove it for yourself. I'll yeah. say, you know, as as far as I know, this this feels right for me. It's helped countless uh, clients. I'm I'm imagining that what I'm doing is X, Y, and Z, 
but obviously I don't have an fMRI machine in in you know at my disposal so I'm just extrapolating from previous research studies to imagine that what I'm doing today follows these steps and so I would say yeah question everything and seek out um, yeah seek out the people who you admire I, I, um, I really I, I really really appreciate you saying the, the idea of question everything you know I think that there, there is not enough of a culture of healthy skepticism. There's not enough of a culture of, of proper critical thinking skills within within the hypnosis field. And so it's really lovely to hear someone as prominent as yourself saying as much. Now then, um, um, well, Melissa, can I can yeah, I just speak yeah. to that for just a moment? Yeah, yeah, please um, do. Because there is another side to this. All right, yeah. and there is there is you know people falling into scientism, right? Mm. Which is in itself another box that is going to make certain things harder for those people to, to, to learn, right? So scientism, which is, you know, well, that, that process has not been, you know, scientifically validated or empirically tested long enough to, to be considered a part of the, you know, the canon, right? And God, if, if we waited for those, for those scientific uh, studies to be done, then our hands would be tied. Right. So. Yeah. So there is something that just discredits things without the curiosity and the experimentation. And I feel like they've lost the idea of what true skepticism means. Skepticism is is not being invested in believing or not believing. And yet I find that current people who say I'm a skeptic, what they're doing is they're actually a believer. You know, they're a believer in this thing, not working and that bias too is going to come out number one in the experimentation if they ever even get to that point we know that you know it's really hard to separate beliefs and expectations from outcomes we know that you know studies done are being debunked constantly because of beliefs and faulty premises and hypotheses so on some level you don't want to be stuck in that, you know, and, and, and turn yourself into a, you know, one of those uh, scientism people because it truly is just as limiting, if not far more limiting than, um, than someone who doesn't question anything and just, you know, channels the angels into, you know, whatever. Um, you know what I'm saying? So I, sure, I think sure, that, sure. that both sides have their limitations and to, to truly be neutral and open to say, well, you know what? We still don't know. Right. Yeah. You said that people were having problems with the Spiegel study. And I get that. And I get where it's 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 limiting in itself. But at least and, and I'm not a big fan of Spiegel, to be perfectly honest. I think, uh, you know, a lot of what he's said uh, in his books and in his interviews um, is not valid either. But at least he's trying. <laughs> at least he's saying, can't we, don't you want to know what's happening in the brain yeah. and why we can cut open someone and have a cesarean section and they've got no drugs in them yeah. to dull them? Don't you want to know what's happening in the brain? So I love that aspect of it. But I think if we waited for science to validate, we wouldn't have been using hypnosis even because yeah. there's still a huge camp. There's still people that poo-poo that. Sure. They, they say, oh, you're a hypnotist. Are you, do you, uh, you know, are you a palm reader too? 
They've just they've 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 lumped it together with you know alien abduction, tarot card reading, palm reading. You know, so there's you gotta you gotta walk this in this space of you know I don't know, and it's funny in my classes, um, I'm known for as soon as someone asks a question that is virtually impossible to really answer. You know what's happening in the brain when someone does this. And I'll say, well, first answer, and my entire class will yell out, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'll say, that's right. Second answer is, here's my guess. Sometimes yeah. it's an educated guess, and sometimes I have no clue, but it's just what uh, my experience is, is, is showing me. The other thing I say all the time is, you know, this shit is all made up. And I was at uh, in Vegas, even even with Igor, uh, who you say is is, is your friend, um, at HypnoThoughts last year, and I was doing a keynote for a, a, a group of people that um, graduated from the HPTI training. And you know, I hadn't really prepared anything. I thought it was just hey, say a few words. I didn't realize that it was like supposed to be a big commencement speech. So you know, I kind of step up there and start talking about you know, how cool this field is and what I wish I had known when I was just starting out. And one of the biggest things I said was, you know, to really keep in mind that this shit is all made up. Every induction that you hold dear, every process that you're worried about getting step three and four and five, know that it's made up. And if you just relax around it, then you can make up your own. If you just relax around, you know, these these ideas that your teachers have told you and the techniques and the scripts, and you realize that this shit is all made up. And I mean, I can go into, you know, what we think reality is, is made up. What vision is, is made up. That the brain is constantly making stuff up. Um, but anyway, what was really funny is for the whole next four days, people kept quoting me, right? And you would think it's a really easy bumper sticker to remember. And yet... <laughs> People were saying things like, you know, one of my students came running to me and said, I was just in so-and-so's training and oh my God, they quoted you. But here's what they said. As Melissa Tear says, it's all shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, there was a, that's there, there not was some, it. There were some Chinese whispers occurring. Oh my God. And then it got to the point where as I was explaining this, because I think even Igor, you know, quoted me slightly wrong. Um <clears throat> At a certain point, I was by the bar and I was laughing over it because someone else had heard a misquote. And this this woman comes up and goes, oh, my God, would you sign my book? And I've been quoting you all weekend. I've been saying, as Melissa Tear says, it's all bullshit. And I'm like, OK, well, that one takes the cake. Like, so two things. My answer is I don't know. And I'm happy to not know. And then, you know, this shit is all made up. And if, if you own those two basic ideas, <laughs> <laughs> then you have a lot more room to play and investigate and get curious, mm. right? Because mm. I don't know, so let me find out. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, anyway. And, and, and all that as a result of me saying that people should think critically and have healthy skepticism. <laughs> Um, 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 I, I do want to qualify that, you know, you know, to me, critical thinking and having healthy skepticism does not mean we have to become science fascists. And I also think that, that you know, being an advanced hypnotherapist, for example, um, or, or, or people looking to be advanced within this field, they, they do question scientific method as 
rigorously and scrutinize it as thoroughly as they do everything else. And, yes. Um, um, I, and can I just say, you know, I, I, I'm not going to. Um, 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 because you know, you and I are probably going to have to have two gins instead of one now um, when we meet in October. But with <laughs> but with with Spiegel, you know, <clears throat> you, you know, I genuinely think that he's attempting to prove his belief. Okay, that, that, yes, I, I'm, well, I'm going that... to put that out there. I, I'm Spiegel, but I'm with you there, Spiegel Adam. That's what I said. There's certain. On me. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You know, I think he's, there's he's certain determined. there's certain things that 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 bother me, and that is one. You know, he. He's already set up a framework. You see, this is this is something that people really don't understand about um, the adaptive unconscious and all the research coming um, out of, you know, embodied cognition, the adaptive unconscious, which talks about our unconscious biases, heuristics. Um, <clears throat> sorry about that. In, in so many different ways that once you have uh, clearly... Uh, demarcated, delineated your belief, your frame, then your unconscious mind is going to jump over hurdles to confirm it. You're going to be filtering through your own unconscious filters that are really set up to prop up your ego and to confirm your beliefs that you already have. And that is when I said I've got a few problems with Spiegel, I'm I'm with you there. That's it. That's part yeah, of it. Yeah. He's yeah. got this frame and he's going to go into every research study wearing blinders of a sort that are going to filter the information in a way that confirms his beliefs. And I, you know, and that unfortunately is what happens to all of us. You know, even when you have an opinion of somebody in the field, then when you meet them, you're not meeting them clear. You're meeting them through the filter of your belief, mm. your expectation. And God forbid you already put something out there into the internet or, the, you know, into your books. Because then you also have the added thing of having to back up what you've said yeah you know oh yeah. i already said this is my opinion of this technique well now i really have a hard time overcoming my own biases in order to change my mind you know and i change my mind every i think i've changed my mind five times during this interview <laughs> because that's yeah. what we do yeah and, yeah and you know i've gotten to this place where i'm i'm okay with that but it took a long time you want to have convictions yeah Absolutely, and it's the do. worst thing you can have. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, um. Now then, now then. I, I, I'm just yes, gonna, get us back on track. I'm just going to quickly get us back on track because because <laughs> in, in, because later on with our discussion, I'm just going to I'm just going to let you go go all chaos on us. Okay. <laughs> How gonna, long gonna, is this interview? <laughs> so 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 so, so we, this part of today we're gonna we're, we're gonna tie up. Where can people go to learn more about you, your work, your approach, everything else? Where can people go? Um, I have uh, two websites. One is, is you know, being <clears throat> spruced up. But that's my online training site, which is Center for Integrative Hypnosis. Um, and that is where I have, you know, a lot of online uh, trainings being offered so that if you can't get to New York City or you can't get to um, any one of the conferences that I go to, whether it's in Las Vegas, the UK, Berlin, um, Massachusetts, I just came back from, as well as uh, I think I'll be in Dubai in March, and I'm looking at uh, Australia for next year. Um, 
so I do travel a lot, and if you if you go to melissatears.com and sign up for my newsletter, um, I'm pretty uh, spacey when it comes to sending out stuff, unless I've got really something uh, to offer. Um, so I'll send out a newsletter saying, hey, I'm going to be here if anyone wants to join me, you know, um, or I have a new book out, which, ah, which I have yet to do, even though I do have a new book out. <laughs> 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 I told you, marketing is not one of my strong points. I tend to, um, I tend to gravitate towards what fascinates me, and uh, I'm just not fascinated with that yet. Maybe someday. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So that that's how you can find me. Um, yeah. Please, if you're in the UK, I know that a lot of your audience members are. Come to the UK conference. That is going to be fun. You and I will be there, right at the bar. Yeah. And um, James Tripp who um, is someone who I just saw. He, he visited my center here in New York. And, and when I was um, in England last time, I had a great uh, day uh, with James, who I really admire his mind because as someone who you can actually watch progress in this field, you know, starting with this very, you know, hypnosis without trance and now like being influenced by Gilligan, who I also like and I've done some supervision a few years with uh, Stephen Gilligan. Um, you know, I like watching someone who is so into this that you you can see them expand. You mm. can see the the boxes that they initially created for themselves, you know, being being blown out, you know, the lid off that box and then the sides of the box get blown out. And so I I'm always admiring people that uh, that have a willingness to, as I said, change their mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a great friend of the show and a good buddy of mine, um, James Tripp. Um, yeah, um, so, I like him. So melissatears.com, centerforintegrativehypnosis.com. There will be links to both of those websites um, um, and, and any others that we discussed today at um, this pa the page of this particular episode at the Hypnosis Weekly website. We're going to be back with Melissa Tears um, um, in just a few moments' time. Don't go away. Melissa, for now, thank you. We'll speak to you again in a short while. Thanks, Adam. It was fun. I really enjoyed that interview. As I said, we'll be back with Melissa for our professional discussion shortly. On to this week's Hypnosis in the News section. I'm not citing any specific or particular stories this week, but a general way that hypnosis and NLP practitioners portray themselves in the media as masters. Masters. You go on a seven-day course, you become a practitioner. Then you go on a nine-day course and you get a certificate that says you are a master. And you proudly share this with the world. Why not? You've got a certificate that says so. You've got 16 days of training under your belt and you've spent a lot of money. Um, I don't want to ostracize myself from my listeners here. Um, I'm so I'm hoping that you know... Uh, the, the tone of what I'm attempting to do. Um, so the 2016 Rio Olympics just finished happening. Um, yay, you know, I loved the Olympics. Um, um, Team GB did awesome. And uh, these are people who've dedicated much of their lives to their sporting pursuits. They're the greatest in the world, the cream of the sporting world. Yet very, very few, if any, claim to have mastered the sport or even consider professing 
to be a master of it. Even the most decorated Olympians tend to believe they have more to learn, improvements that they can make or they could have made as they strive towards the ideal of mastering their sport. In a similar vein, you know, if you watched world-leading ballet dancers, for example, showing similar gymnastic ability, yet having to dance with additional grace, with such attention to details, um, the world-leading ballet dancers do not consider themselves masters necessarily. Can you imagine if a leading ballet dancer was to announce to the world following 16 days of training, I am a master ballet dancer, for example? Um, there are no... Um, um, there, there, there's no hard and fast rules to what I'm saying here, because, of course, there are exceptions to most things. You know, chess and a couple of other sports do use the term for those who have reached a pinnacle of the field. Maybe they've played and beaten former masters, played at the highest level, studied with other masters and so on. But can we really compare the achievements of practitioners in our field to those few or those handful of chess masters, for example? And what about world leading physicists, Nobel Prize winners, even doctors who undergo many, many years of training, then practice under continued tutelage, then are monitored, then have years of professional practice? Are they ever labeling themselves as master doctor? Nope. They aren't. Again, after 16 days of medical school, would he or she be able to pronounce themselves a master doctor? OK, I'll ease off for a moment and gather some perspective. I understand that people would like to be offered some credibility and some assurance to prospective clients. However, is it always really ethical to suggest that you are a master of something after 16 days and in many cases less training? Is it really ethical to consider yourself a practitioner with just seven days training, for example? What about professional practice, depth of experience of dealing with an array of clients and varying issues? What about having studied the depth and breadth of the field before being labelled a master? Most of those that I encounter who title themselves master in this field don't have as much clinical experience as, as, as I would like, for example, and do not know much beyond the Ericksonian approach to hypnosis, for example. When I ask basic questions about opposing perspectives or alternate perspectives or about specific research or about clinical experience, I'm often confronted with blank expressions leading to defiance and resistance. Um, and you might be listening to this right now and feeling defiant and resistant. I can find no real way of ever really using the term master in this field with, 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 with perhaps a number of very, very few exceptions. If we look at the literal definition of the term, it can be used to mean a number of things. Historically, for example, the word, the word has been used as a noun, the word master, a man who has people working for him, for example. Now, perhaps some hypnotherapists out there have servants, but that's unlikely to be a result of their hypnotherapy skills, though, heck, some of us may make cliched quips about using hypnosis for such. As a noun, again, it could mean a person who has complete control of something. Again, we could offer up some cliched quips about being able to control others, but we can't use hypnosis to absolutely control others. However, this use of the word usually refers to being master of the situation or master of the house. I do not think that so many hypnotherapists could claim to have the single role of master of the field of hypnotherapy. So I guess this is not the way it's meant. It could mean someone in charge of a group or an organisation. Again, 
this limits it to a single person at a time. And though there are a number of hypnotherapy and NLP organisations in the world, there are not enough to explain why we have so many, such a proliferation of master hypnotherapists and NLP practitioners in the world. I could understand the use of it in this way, whereby perhaps a Swami or a Maharishi is referred to as a master in guru-type fashion. Again, though, can there be so many masters in this context? There are a lot of master practitioners of varying kinds in our field. So secondly, then, I suppose the term master could refer to a skilled practitioner of a particular art or activity, even if you are cited as being a virtuoso, a professional, adept or a a star, even a prodigy, all of which are synonyms of master. You know, I looked them up. Um, Can that be extended to being a master, too? I mean, let's skip past people who have a master's degree, for example. They train and learn for much more than 16 days upon, you know, the foundation of other studies. And what's more, they do not necessarily refer to themselves as a master. Rather, they are beholden of a master's in ABC field of study. Let's also skip over the use of the word master for a boy who is... um, you know, about to become a man and therefore not considered old enough to be titled Mr. We sometimes refer to a master copy as an original of something, a document from which copies can be made, usually of a very high quality. Again, though, this is usually a single version at the top and cannot account for the volume of master practitioners. So I don't think this is the right interpretation of the term in our field. So that brings us to definitions of us having or showing a very great skill or proficiency, usually denoting a person skilled in a particular trade or able to teach others. Or similarly, to acquire complete knowledge or skill in a subject or a technique or an art. And I suspect most people would err on the side of this interpretation and explanation with regards to calling themselves a master practitioner in the NLP or hypnotherapy field. But does that number of days in class really entitle you to call yourself such? I guess it's open for further debate than than, than I'm really able to offer here today. During my own encounters with so many hypnotherapists or NLP practitioners, I'm, I'm titling themselves masters, there are almighty gaps in their knowledge and their expertise and their professional experience, just as there are in my own. You know, but, you know, I've got to say there's often far greater gaps than my own with, with, with other people. But, you know, as a principal of a prominent hypnotherapy college, I would say that, wouldn't I? Of course I would. But it leads me to question whether they can truly tell the public that they have mastered that subject or mastered this field. Usually there's far, far more to learn, you know, far, far more room for improvement. I have an NLP Master Practitioner Certificate myself from the Society of NLP that I received many years ago indeed. Upon reflection, I was not equipped following that training to call myself a master. Um, And so I don't. That's not a slight upon the training itself. Usually a training is the start of a path aiming towards mastery or something closer to it. It is more a reflection upon the proliferation of people in these fields calling themselves masters of it, which I tend to dispute a touch. I know that you are proud of what you do. I know you're proud of your qualifications. I know you have invested plenty of time and money into them. But have you honestly and truly mastered this subject? I know I haven't, and I doubt I ever will master it fully, exhaustively. I'm going to have a lovely, lovely time mining this subject over the years. 
Some of us may master aspects of what we do, but that may need some qualification before making reference to ourselves using that title. So really, I was just asking some questions here on the podcast today. Nothing more to add or say, really, in which case I'll lighten it up, because in my opinion, there is only one true master of anything in the world, and he's a grandmaster. No, I'm not referring to the grandmaster wizard head of the Masons, but the one and only grandmaster Flash, who was joined by the Furious Five and sang the song The Message. I love that classic tune. I'm even going to put a link to that tune up on this episode, uh, up on this week's podcast entry um, um, on the, the Hypnosis Weekly website. Next up then, we have this week's professional discussion. I welcome back Melissa Tears. When I asked Melissa about what we discussed, she, she, she offered up a number of themes and topics and I dodged one of them um, about coaching the unconscious mind because as a nominalized entity, I do not believe there is such a thing and I struggle to see how it's anything to do with hypnosis. And I told Melissa this and we spoke about it off air. And in a way in which I suspect is typical of her, um, she said, no, let's talk about it. Let's debate it. So we do talk about neuroplasticity and Melissa explains um, 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 what that means and how understanding it is practically applied and used by hypnotherapists. And then we do discuss that unconscious mind stuff. And Melissa explains how her view and mine are actually not all that dissimilar after all. And, you know, it put a smile on my face. And that's what we discuss here. Here is this week's professional discussion with Melissa Tears. Enjoy. So I'm back and rejoined by Melissa Tears and and we're going to talk all things neuroscience and neuroplasticity. Uh, one of the sort of core core themes of one of Melissa's books, uh, um, a topic that she lectures upon and so on. Now, Melissa, straight off the top of the bat, tell me what what actually what, what, what is meant by neuroplasticity for people that are not familiar with the term? First of all, tell us what actually is it? Well, it's interesting because nowadays it's it's so much a part of even our pop culture that, you know, neurons that fire together wire together um, that, you know, it's rare to encounter someone who's not heard the word or the idea of neuroplasticity, which is literally the the uh, the fact that the brain is constantly uh, rewiring itself. Um, and there's a few different types of neuroplasticity. You know, there's experience dependence. So with every new thing you're experiencing, learning, practicing, your brain is is making new neural connections. That, you know, um, one of the, I have a little book that I give to my clients uh, called the Anti-Anxiety Toolkit. But basically, it's, it's really a primer on self-directed neuroplasticity. And it is ways of utilizing um, different techniques and, and ideas to rewire your habituated patterns. So um, neuroplasticity comes in, in quite a few forms. And if you think about um, the cab drivers in London who you know, when, uh, when they've looked at their brains, they find a very dense area uh, as it relates to navigation, mm. right? Because they've used it so much. They spent a year learning it, unlike here in New York City, <laughs> <laughs> where cabbies don't know where the hell to go. Um, so, you know, the violin players that will have a more prominent and dense, thickened, literally thickened area 
um, as it relates to their, uh, you know, the hand that does the fingering versus the bow. So you, you start to understand that we are, we are, it's almost like muscles that with use get thicker, denser and co-opt more neural real estate. So I teach and work with a few different types of neuroplasticity. When someone comes in, I say, we're going to work on a few levels. First level is today you're going to learn how to stop it, right? So whatever it is, whether it is a compulsion, a craving, anxiety, uh, anger, stress, I teach them how the basic idea of rewiring the brain is as soon as you start to feel the pattern emerging, whether it's a little anxiety or a craving or the stress, you immediately interrupt it. And I give a bunch of quick pattern interrupts, whether it's a quick bilateral stimulation or a quick way of accessing um, the parasympathetic system, you know, through the vagus nerve and things like that. Um, they're all pattern interrupts, uh, you know, mm. kinesthetic anchors, whether it's the backward spin. I teach a bunch depending on the individual so that they always have some way of getting the hell out of the anxiety or the craving. I, I you know, anchor in a peripheral vision state so that they can stop the inner dialogue. And I, I do a bunch of these and I give them to the client. So that is uh, to promote self-directed neuroplasticity, right? That they can do themselves. Mm. By using the conscious mind, you can literally change the brain, right? Mm. The brain does definitely take the shape of what yeah. we focus on, of what we do repeatedly. The other form of neuroplasticity, so that would be considered a counteractive strategy. Yeah. You're creating counter uh, neural roads, Right. So the old road is still kind of there. And, and, and although it does get overgrown a bit, kind of shrinks down, you're fostering counter roads. They can go in different directions. Mm. The other form of neuroplasticity um, has to deal with something I already mentioned, which is uh, memory reconsolidation, where we can literally start to rewrite, uh, you know, early implicit memories or just rewriting the uh, emotional component of memories. Because every time you remember something, you know, it, it, it becomes malleable again. It's like you lift it out of the brain and, and you have a window of about six hours where you can <clears throat> manipulate that. And then it gets laid down back in the brain. Um, so memory reconsolidation is is a is slightly different form of neuroplasticity and then kind of what i do these days and the way that i describe it in certain camps as i said depending on who i'm working with you know when i when i have a client who's a psychiatrist i'm i'm going to be using slightly different language you know mm. and that's when i'll say look think of this as practical neuroscience you know mm. and what we need to do is we need to rewire this part here we need to neutralize these triggers and a way of doing that with repetition is literally following you know the hebbian law which is you know neurons that fire together wire together i also have them do different uh you know self hypnosis um practices some of which i just kind of made up because they're fun and some standards but it's basically about practicing. Um, <clears throat> I think it was Hansen who said, um, if you practice an emotional state, it will become a neural trait. 
<clears throat> in the brain. And so I use that idea as well to to add to whatever traditional self-hypnosis uh, form. So I really am, you know, being a, a bit more cognizant about how the brain works and what what is uh, what we believe is happening when we're doing our change work. Mm. When we're activating the neural network involved in that habituated pattern and then throwing a wrench into it, co-opting different neural networks and uh, creating kind of synaptic connections that weren't there before. So neuroplasticity, just to go, <laughs> I, I do teach in loops. <laughs> <laughs> neuroplasticity is, is really the brain's ability to... Um, to rewire itself and and even to uh, to have new neurogenesis and neural growth, you know the work of Ernest Rossi, you know years ago in his book The Psychobiology of of Gene Expression, kind of touches on that. But we know so much more now about mm -hmm. what creates uh, new neural growth, and that is um, you know novelty, curiosity, dopamine. You know, so in my classes, you know, if, if we're not laughing together in the first two minutes, I'm not doing my job well, uh, because I know that that promotes dopamine, with, which locks in attention and helps to foster uh, memory um, processing. Mm. Mm. Uh, and did I answer you? You did. You did. And so, <laughs> and so and, and, and I, I was I, I forgot that I was running the podcast there for a moment. So so so. So talk to me about how this then applies to to to, to hypnotherapists and hypnotists and, and, and how it can become sort of practically applied to, well, to, I mean, to, 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 to me, what we do. To me, it's already what we're doing. You know, so in other words, a, a lot of what I teach when I'm teaching trained hypnotists, which is, you know, at all the conferences, you know, typically I have hypnosis trainers in my classes, you know, so they're already using neuroplasticity. You're already using memory reconsolidation. You're already, you know, using experience dependent uh, hypnosis. Even mental rehearsal um, has been studied uh, in fMRI machines so that we understand that when you visualize yourself doing something and you embody it, you float into that, right? Think of NLP's new behavior generator, you know, where you make a movie of how you want to be and then you float into it that, you know, the same regions of the brain are firing off. So they're already using uh, neuroplasticity uh, just inadvertently, mm. you know, just not necessarily understanding fully what's going on, right. you know, um, in, in, in different things that utilize even uh, different regions of the brain, right? Bilateral mm. stimulation. I train therapists who are already using EMDR and, and things like that. So um, so that, I mean, it, it's totally practical because it's always been there. We just didn't know it, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. always been happening and that's how we can explain, you know, it's funny because, um, when I started to really study this and, and, you know, uh, new, uh, synaptic connections are formed through repetition and so that I understood for part of what I did with people. But what I, what I couldn't understand was how people would change in five minutes. 
right? Mm. How can I do this NLP process or this weird tapping process or this other process? Because integrative hypnosis by its very nature is, you know, I'm wide open. I've created this, this, this um, umbrella so that I can always be learning without, as we were talking about earlier, without defining a box that I now have to defend and stay within, I've created integrative hypnosis. And what does that mean? Well, that depends on my mood. But basically, it means that I can keep learning and pulling things in because of the very name of integrative, right? Mm. And so part of what was confounding to me was, okay, if, if we rewire the brain through repetition, then what the fuck is happening when someone changes in five minutes? How does mm. that work? And that's why I was so excited when it's only been in the past like six, seven years that therapeutic reconsolidation um, has been more deeply understood, which is the ability to rewire the early implicit um, primes, mm -hmm. right? And how neural networks are a set of things that, that really do touch base with early priming um, incidents, beliefs, you know, things like that. So, yeah, yeah. so even the most standard uh, hypnosis, even direct suggestion, if it's done in a certain sequence, is going to turn on neuroplasticity. And so yeah. it, it's very, it's, it's totally relevant. And I think, you know, what, what I'm always uh, wanting my students to be able to do is to speak the language, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Erickson was brilliant because he would speak the language of the, the, the client in front of him. He knew enough about different cultures. He knew enough about, you know, um, where maybe some of their um, uh, perceptions and, 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 and cultural inclinations and neuro associations were going to be lit up. And I think we need to expand our language. So, you know, I teach a lot of doctors and I need to be able to speak a language that's going to get one of the most crucial things um, to happen, which is we need conscious buy-in. Mm. If mm. I have conscious buy-in in my sessions, in my classes, then that goes a long way. Yeah. So that we can help someone to change by shaking a, a bone in their face if we can get the right preframe. If we can get them to believe that this is what's going to happen and because I'm gonna do this thing, this ritual, this is going to happen, and belief and expectation plays out, then that'll work. But if they don't have a way of understanding it, then you know it's it's going to be limited as to the generative quality of that change. Mm. Mm. So anyway, that was to answer how neuroplasticity is relevant to what we do. I I, th I think it's it's absolutely relevant, and it's what we've been doing all along. So you might as well you know co-op some of that language to make certain people feel comfortable. My yeah. practice is in New York City. People <laughs> like to know this shit. People want to have a basic understanding of why they've been in therapy for forty years. <laughs> Right. This is New York. And and they haven't been able to change. And so when I talk about, well, this is why here's what we need. You've been trying to change with, you know, this very limiting aspect of your mind. Mm. Mm. And you've been telling the same story over and over. So you've literally been reinforcing those negative patterns. Yeah. yeah. So I teach them how to tell the story without the affect. And that's the first part. 
or I teach them just to tell a different story, or I get them to start to tell the story and I do a very abrupt pattern interrupt so I can start to, you know, rewire that, break down the neural network that's mm. holding that in place. Mm. You know, and and this speaks to what, what we were chatting about a little uh, uh, before you turned on the recording. And um, I know it's okay to share because I asked you that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that you had said, you know, that you were not uh, a believer that we have an unconscious mind. And, you know, we were joking about uh, the, the, the ways of defining the unconscious, right? So when I talk about the unconscious mind, I'm talking about all the processing that is outside of conscious awareness. I'm talking about the, you know, the, the uh, multi-sensory uh, systems and the heuristics and the biases and all of this processing that goes on without our conscious awareness. I'm talking about the most part of our thinking. I'm talking about what is happening every single moment in order for us to make sense of the world. Yeah. So when I talk about the unconscious, I'm not talking about this thing. First of all, I'm not talking about the Freudian idea of this, this, you know, this hulking thing, you know, obsessed with force. death and right, this benevolent force, you know, with death instincts and, you know, and, and hardcore weird sexual inclinations. You know, we're not talking about that. <laughs> no, no, good. Phew, phew. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and, and I'm not even talking about this. Oh, your unconscious will guide you here. Your unconscious knows that it's I'm talking about the thing that is processing millions of bits of information every single moment. Mm. I'm talking about all of and, and even to call it a thing is just a metaphor. It's a model that makes understanding our work a little easier for our clients. You've got a conscious mind and an unconscious mind. Yeah. And when I'm doing conscious, unconscious dissociation, really I'm just priming them, right? I'm priming them for the interspersal method, right? I'm priming them for certain things to mark out that special messaging. But even that's a metaphor. And so when you start to, to, to really look at it and people say, trust your unconscious, now, some people have this idea when they think that, right, of this, like you said, a force, something that has its very own life, right, that mm. is, oh, if you just tap into this, you know, all-knowing, godlike presence that is your unconscious. Mm. Whereas when I say trust your unconscious, I'm talking about trust that part of you that is processing millions of bits of information every single moment. Right. But that is also that is also absolutely fallible in that it's constantly making errors. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So my it's point. constantly operating under a set of prejudices, a set of biases that gets us into trouble. Yeah. So, you know, it is not this all knowing, wonderful thing. Because it operates with shortcuts going on. Yeah, and, and, and it can get stuff wrong. Oh, my God. It, and does. Yeah. Uh, quite often, almost every day, yeah. almost every part of what you're thinking, it gets things wrong. And so, you know, anyway, so, yes, yeah, so we do agree there that when I talk about the unconscious mind, it is it is a metaphor, but it is also talking about that which is 
outside of our conscious control. Mm. It is the processing that goes on that underlies every conscious thought we have. None of it exists outside of the unconscious processing. We don't make a single freaking decision that isn't heavily played out unconsciously. Mm, mm, And so, you know, we think we know why we choose this or that. But really, the research on the adaptive unconscious, and that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the systems that are going on outside of, of, of our awareness that we don't even acknowledge, right? Mm. That statistically, we're more apt to choose something if it's on the right side, or we're more apt. And anyway, I, I, could, I could talk about this for hours and hours because it's fascinating. I, I teach... Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I'll be teaching, I think, I think I'll be teaching a class on priming the unconscious mind and how to utilize this research and make it practical. Because otherwise, I'm a bit of a research junkie. If I didn't have a way to, to, to get my hands on it, then it would just, you know, it would be forgotten quite quickly. Yeah. So <clears throat> when you understand that, when I start my coaching course, right, I have a, a course called Coaching the Unconscious Mind. I'm actually going to be teaching a, a two-day version of it in, in England. Um, yeah. You want to come and sit in and play, I'm, I'm happy to have you. Um, and it's fun stuff. So I, when I teach it at my center, I make sure that I'm brewing the most amazing coffee. And I have all sorts of teas. And I encourage everybody to get you know, a warm beverage so that I can point out that because they're holding that warm beverage, research indicates they'll be, they'll be rating me uh, as a warmer individual. That I make sure that I clean, you know, with a lemon fresh, you know, uh, organic cleaner. Because if they smell that, even if it's slightly under the radar, then research indicates they will clean up after themselves. And some research is indicating that they will act more honestly. (laughs) That I know that if I'm going to hand something uh, in intake form, which I must confess I haven't used in in many years because I just don't like paperwork. I don't write down anything. But for for people that are just starting out, if you're going to do an intake form, get a really heavy clipboard. (laughs) (laughs) Because research indicates people holding a heavy clipboard will lend more weight to this. You know, we are metaphoric. And language, you know, runs deep. And so when, you, when you're sitting on a hard chair, research indicates that it'll be harder for you to, 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 to be more open-minded, to change your mind. Mm. And so, you know, the color, right? The drunk tank pink. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Right. So you know that the colors on the walls affect behavior. You know that if you're walking in nature, it's been shown to boost interleukins in your system, which mm. fight cancer. So if you can't do that, then by having images of nature... So hospitals are now having, you know, lots of green. And if they can't have plants, they have at least pictures of plants that have been conducive to healing and creativity. So all of these things go into priming the unconscious mind. And Mm. once again, we're talking about the unconscious mind. And I can sense that a part of you might still bristle a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) because I say it and you could easily see how people would think that there would be this thing, this childlike nine-year-old thing that is pliable. Some, so, so how does that, this, this always cracks me up on one level. People are saying the unconscious acts like a nine-year-old 
and will respond to direct suggestion. And then that same person will say, tap into the wisdom of your unconscious mind. And I'm like, you mean the nine-year-old? Yeah. You mean tap into the wisdom of my nine-year-old? So wait, you've just contradicted things. So what do you mean? And this is me at my first hypnosis training going, wait a second. You just said it'll just take this, this you know, direct suggestion blindly like a nine-year-old. And then you're saying tap into the wisdom of it. I don't get it. What are you talking about? Yeah. So, you know, um, I think Erickson was was way ahead of his time and he knew what he was talking about when he was talking about your unconscious mind processes, you know, many things all at once and has the, you know, I don't think he was seeing the unconscious mind as a separate, uh, all-knowing, godlike figure that exists somewhere in your brain. Mm. Um, I think he was well aware of mm. unconscious processing because he was researching it. You know, I was just having a conversation because uh, one of my friends who runs a conference in Zurich and, and Berlin, Hans Rudi, you know, he, he, he's very much an Elminian uh, practitioner and, and has, you know, a, a poo-pooing of Erickson. And I said, the only people that poo-poo Erickson's work have not read it. Mm. And you're operating under what certain people have told you about Erickson, or maybe you're reading his later stuff where he's just telling stories and you're thinking that's all it is. But if you look at all the years of research, he was doing regression in, in a very different way. He was doing direct suggestion. He was doing amazing work with amazing hypnotic phenomenon. And mm. so, you know, to poo poo something like that just means you haven't really immersed yourself in his work. So even he, I think, knew that it was a metaphoric construct when mm. we talk about the unconscious mind. Mm. But it can be primed, and that has been researched. So what is that? You know what I'm saying? We can, we can infiltrate this processing once we become aware of it and conscious of it. Then at least we can recognize when we're operating under a bias, which is all the time. Yeah. Sometimes I catch myself and I say, whoops. <laughs> I know the bias that I'm currently running. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and when I sometimes I point that out to people when they've they've staked a position and they've staked that position and then have to defend it. And when I say that you're operating under a couple of different unconscious biases, and then I get I don't have any unconscious biases, then I realize we're speaking two different language. Mm. You know, that they don't understand what I mean by that. Mm. I mean you have a confirmation bias, which is blinding you to anything that, you know, is not going to confirm your belief already. And you've got a certain amount of filters that are operating so that you're going to read what I've just wrote through a lens. And, and let's just get real with that. Yeah. And once we do, then we can start to check ourselves. God, I check myself all the time. It ain't pretty. <laughs> but, you know, I think this is this is. Um... Uh, you, you know, for a lot of people, it's quite difficult to to have such humility, and that is, you know, it can be a bit of pill to swallow to recognise one's own one's own biases. And 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 for for, for me, on two levels, you know, first of all, um, a, a client becoming aware, I think, is is a very very different place, and um, becoming aware of their cognitive biases, being able to act upon them, and so on, compared to, for example. Um, um, the way in which people proliferate certain pieces of information within a hypnotherapy field, um, for example, about their their cognitive biases, um, where 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 perhaps they might 
they might defend a particular stance, a, a bit like political rhetoric or philosophical rhetoric, for example. Exactly. Um, yep. um, so, you, you know, I, I, it's music to my ears, a lot of the stuff with regards to, to the heuristics. And and you know what? I could talk with you about this and, and hear more about it. Um, but we're, we're really getting out of time, Melissa. Um, yeah. Um, um, and, but, but if people want to come and hear you, people, you know, you guys in the UK, you want to come and hear um, Melissa talk about this stuff. She's going to be talking about presenting at the UK Hypnosis Convention about self-directed neuroplasticity. I'll be sat in there as well. Um, um, so, so for me, for me, that, that is just adding value to this presentation. The fact that I'm going to be in the room at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> be there be there you can sit on one side of the room and, 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 and nudge and, your and friends please... and say that's adam eason over there that's adam eason <laughs> the real one look how shiny his forehead is in real life wow and and let me just say uh you know i'm not just talking about it this is this is the thing i i really want to make clear um, I've one of my pet peeves about you know I go to so many conferences is that when you're just sitting here lecturing I know how much information is not making it to where it needs to be so uh, I'm not just talking about it I'm I'm showing you how to implement it I'm teaching you a bunch of techniques that you might not know and might know but have never put it into this self-directed neuroplasticity frame in the mm. way that I'm doing it mm. I'll be sharing with you some of um, my new I just had a, a workshop that was so much fun uh, where I did arm catalepsy variations right I think that was probably the title but I don't remember anymore and I was just playing with some of these different ideas right pulling from the work of Les Femi and his open focused brain and pulling all of these different so it's 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 playing with new things because I know what what kind of gets people excited is is to me when I learn a new technique it's like a shiny new toy and I go home and I play with it and I take it apart and I figure out how to put it back together in different ways. So I always in every even if it's a 20 minute lecture, you're going to be turning to the person next to you and doing something mm. to 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 embody it, to to make it, you know, um, palpable. So, you know, I'm not just talking about it. I can talk about that in 10 minutes. But how do I Im implement it? And so that'll be fun. And yes, come and play. I'm excited about this conference because I'm meeting you there. I've never seen um, uh, Anthony uh, Jacquin. Is that mm. how you say his name? Yeah. So there's a few people I've never um, seen, and I'm I'm excited to sit in their classes as well. I'm a big believer in when I go to conferences, sitting. You know, if if there's someone I don't know, I've never heard their their name. I'm going to go to that, and I'm mm. going to sit down. I'm going to see what kind of nuggets I can get. So I'm I'm excited for it. But I yeah. know we're running out of time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's um, wrap this up. All that remains for me to say, Melissa Tears, thank you. Thank you for being oh, my so pleasure. giving so generously and and talking so so wildly. Um, um, um and, and just shunning, <laughs> shunning my structure and my 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 need for it. Um, um, thank you. It's been it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Um, um, my Melissa pleasure. I, I can't wait to uh, to hang out with you in in London. It, I'm really looking forward to it. Let's Me have too. dinner. Me too. Thoroughly enjoyed that discussion with Melissa. On to this week's evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week, and it's this. 
Self-hypnosis training outperforms standard care and waiting list control groups in treating haemophilia. Yes, indeed, in the study entitled The Effects of a Comprehensive Self-Hypnosis Training Program on the Use of Factor 8 in Severe Haemophilia, as featured in the International Journal of Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis, those who received the self-hypnosis training significantly reduced the amount of factor concentrate used to control bleeding in comparison to control groups. They also had significantly lower general distress levels and reports that support the efficacy of the self-hypnosis training program suggest that it can be used to augment the medical management of severe haemophiliacs. And the full study details can be found over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. One final point I'd say on this, uh, you know, I'm being a pedant. Um, Haemophilia is spelled H. A-E-M-O and so on, etc. Not just H-E-M. Come on, US-based researchers. Get your Queen's English correct. So, that's it for this week's 52nd edition. I do have many more exciting guests that are welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. In the coming weeks, we'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. My guest next time out is Andrew Parr. We'll be talking about ways of using clean language questioning techniques to get to the root of a problem, amongst other things. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please uh, message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they're addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, anywhere else and really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again go to Melissa Tears. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.